Welcome to the Genesis Church Podcast. We'll have more information at the end of the podcast, but for now, please enjoy this week's teaching. I am going to ask us to, to begin with some, just let's take a big deep breath, a couple of big deep breaths, in and out, center, centering ourselves. Continue to breathe deeply as I pray for us. God who holds the threads of our lives together, breathe fresh spirit into our hearts, giving us capacity to listen well to one another, to consider your sacred text anew today. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So today, feeling a little nervous because I'm going to start out with kind of a, a confession of sorts. Uh, so the Apostle Paul and I haven't had the smoothest of relationships. In fact, I, I tend not to even preach from Paul's texts. I think this might be the second sermon I've ever done from Paul. In high school, I would create art out of his words. I would use my best writing and my best markers and some cardstock, and I would painstakingly write out his words, and put them as posters on my wall. Some of you may have had posters of boy bands or movie stars. I was the cool girl with the words of Paul (laughs) written on her walls because they were these words that I returned to time and time again for encouragement and for conviction. But the shadow side of that was that those words were also used to create very distinct lines in the sand about who was in and who was out, all with the force of scripture behind them. And by the time I started college, I kind of wondered why our church seemed to talk way more about Paul than we did about Jesus, at least in our evangelical congregation, that was the case. And all the pretty posters I made and the tidy boxes that I created from his words no longer fit my evolving faith. And the baggage that I carried as a result of the interpretation of his words were just too much to bear. Because the wrestling of my faith has rarely been with God or with Jesus. It's been with Paul. It's been with the way his words have been interpreted since they were canonized. Derek Webb put out a song, he of Cademan's Call fame, put out a song on his recent Jesus Hypothesis album entitled Sympathy for Paul, where he sings, You're still killing us, Paul. And positing in the lyrics, I wonder what you would think about how your words have been used. Jilly Cranshaw writes, Paul is such a complex biblical character. Some interpreters extol his theological views. Some know firsthand the painful power of Paul's voice when interpreters then turn that voice against them. Still others wrestle with Paul's sometimes strident representation of himself as an authoritative leader. And each of these perspectives point to the challenges of understanding Paul's first century message so many years later. So on days when I have more generosity of heart, I try to extend that to Paul. Because I imagine if my earnest and impassioned letters and texts and emails that I've written over the years were somehow gathered, printed out, gathered together, translated, and poured over for centuries. 
I mean, I can hardly look at my old journals without a, a serious cringe. So I cut Paul a lot of slack here when I feel that generosity of heart as I engage with our text today. I'm going to trust that God can bring a good word even when the messenger's words have sometimes been used for harm in other ways. And maybe it's not where you're at. If it feels like too much to listen to a voice from Scripture that's long excluded you or harmed you or someone you love, I understand that. And it's okay to let the Holy Spirit enfold you in her protective wisdom or to even let the Spirit help you check out for a few minutes during the sermon. Trust me, I understand that. With all that said, I'd like to invite Josh to come up and read our scripture this morning. Good morning. Uh, I'll be reading from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We always give thanks to God for all of you and mention you in our prayers, constantly three remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters beloved by God, that he has chosen you because our message of the gospel came to you not in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of persons we proved to, to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for in spite of persecution you received the word with joy from the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place your faith in God has become known, so that we have no need to speak about it. For they report about us what kind of welcome we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. The word of the Lord. So there is a bit of pastoral kindness that emanates from these verses and encouragement to Jesus' followers in Thessalonica. And perhaps that tone here is what made me a little more open to it as I looked at our lectionary options this week. In the scripture portion, we're invited to consider the words of a letter, a letter that wasn't intended for us in 2023, because Paul, in, in all likelihood, thought Jesus was coming back a lot sooner. So we're reading someone else's mail in these letters, and this letter is from an itinerant group of preachers to a young congregation full of heartening words from Paul, Silas, and Timothy. And it appears these Thess Thessalonians have become followers of Jesus not simply, or because of the power of the Spirit of the Word, not simply because of a set of pervasive uh, teachings that they found persuasive. Experiencing the living God has given way to a vibrant way of life for this early gathering of Christians. So what would life have been like in Thessalonica? It was a cultic and commercial center on this major highway running through Macedonia. And culture in the city was very closely linked to Roman and Greek politics and religion. That was the norm. 
And there was this tension between Augustus and Pax Romana with the folks that saw Jesus as the true way and peace. So followers of Jesus in Thessalonica would have been seen as odd by comparison, or at least they would have stood out. And something is happening in their midst because Paul mentioned the persecution they faced. But he encourages them to live where they are, to live these distinctive lives that are marked by an ethic of faith, love, and hope. It's that ethic that defines the identity of a Jesus follower in 1 Thessalonians. And I'd suggest it is the same for us today as we try to understand our own identity as people who are trying to apprentice after Jesus. Even removed by a thousand, several thousand years and a letter that wasn't meant for our audience. Now, there are several paths that you could take from this scripture today. Um, very, I'm not, I was going to say juicy. It's very juicy. Lots of, right? It's a throwback to old Genesis-y language of juicy nuggets. I'm cringing as I said it. I shouldn't have said it. This is why I should, <laughs> this is why I should stick to my notes and not go off script. What felt perf- particularly profound this week was not simply the inclusion of faith, love, and hope, but this expanded description that comes with each phrase as one's identity is made known in the wider world. Verse three tells us Paul was encouraged by their work of faith, their labor of love, their steadfastness of hope. Faith in the living God requires work. Faith asks us to accept what we witness of the Holy Spirit in our midst, the work of God in our midst, and to be curious about how to live out that reality in our day-to-day lives. Faith isn't a static, I'm all set, I'm good mentality, but it's this active posture of trying and failing and trying again. When we turn from the things that distract us towards the divine pulse in our lives, it is a work of faith. When we wrestle with beliefs that are forged into our DNA, wondering where we're going to land when the wrestling ceases, that is a work of faith. When we lean into our belovedness as the toxic noise of others try to convince us that we're not, that is a work of faith. When we turn from the ways where we perpetuate harm onto others towards a posture of shalom, that is the scrappy, humbling, get-your-hands-dirty work of faith. Our second active descriptor that Paul was encouraged by is this labor of love emanating from the church in Thessalonica. When I was a kid, um, all of our extended family, my mom, her siblings, their spouses, all the grandkids would descend on grandma and grandpa's house for holidays. And we were there for days. I think about that now and think, whew, like 20 people in like a medium-sized house. That was a lot. If you weren't attentive to it, you'd take for granted that the beds always had clean sheets on them. The beverage fridge in the basement was fully stocked. The Tupperware in the deep freeze and on the counter were full of different kinds of cookies and bars. The house was always ready when we arrived, and I came to see that as the labor of love that my grandparents did for their family. You didn't arrive feeling like you were putting them out. You knew there would be enough to eat. You knew that everything would smell clean and fresh, and it was hard work getting all those beds made, all those items baked, all the errands that they had to run and the floors they'd scrub. 
But that sacrifice of time and energy and resources was something that if you ask them about it, they would respond, of course, that is what I would do for people I love. And I imagine God like that sometimes. Smoothing down the crisp sheets, cutting me a slice of warm banana bread, sitting at the kitchen table full of questions for me, all because God loves me. If, you, if you've seen the Barbie movie, it's a little bit like Barbie and Ruth and their conversation in that old kitchen, a quiet place, a cup of tea, a creator interested in the life of their creation, someone to be seen, to be cared for, to be loved. And that gift of love inspires me, inspires us hopefully to do likewise in the manner that, that we can, right? 1 John 4.19, we love because God first loved us. There is much we do for others that is not seen or noticed or maybe even appreciated, but we do so as an outpouring of our gratitude for what we receive in the divine relationship. Our identity then becomes made known to those around us by who we love and how we love, and it's important. Lastly, Paul, Silas, and Timothy highlight their encouragement of the young church's steadfastness of hope. To remain steadfast, that really evokes images of kind of resoluteness and staunchness. But maybe a per, uh, perhaps a more expansive way to look at that word is oriented towards hope. Positioning ourselves in a posture of hope. And this is where the larger faith community feels, feels vital, at least for me especially for those of us who have experienced shifts in our worldviews and our experiences of the living God. Hope is not simply fantasy or pie-in-the-sky thinking. It's not simply a pretty word scrolled on a plaque that you keep in your hallway. Hope has to be grounded in something we've seen or felt or experienced. Paul writes about hope because that is what he experienced. The Thessalonians are noticeably different because hope became real by the power of God's spirit. Hope is an active posture, a rootedness connecting a community of Jesus followers. Nathan Eddy writes, in a faith community, empowered action is not incidental. It's not the pastor's terrific idea or a necessary evil to keep the church running. Hope is central to the cooperative way God works in the world. The Holy Spirit builds people up, gathers them in to take action, to live together. So we hold out hope to one another. We hold out hope to our wider communities outside these doors because it is who we are as followers of Jesus. And when we can't hold out hope, when we can't do it for ourselves, we're buoyed by one another. When we can't remember what it feels like to hope that God will act or to be present or to bring a measure of goodness in our lives, we can remind each other. And even our companionship in that is a marker of hope. Sometimes all we can say is, I hope to be hopeful. Sometimes at the end of the day, all we can muster is, I hope this is true. I need this to be true. Paul tells the church in Thessalonians that their faith in God has become known by the welcome they extend and how they shifted away from the things that distracted them, in this case, civic worship, towards a living, 
God. They were known to be different, but in a good way, according to Paul. Today, it can sometimes feel tricky to live under the word Christian. How many of us have told people we're Christian, but not that kind of Christian? Anyone? There's some giggles, so maybe a couple. Honestly, I do think it's how my sister introduces me to other people. Like, it's how she... (laughs) My sister's a Christian, but whatever that kind of Christian means, right? It means different things to different people, but I think it's really easy probably for us to name versions of faith expression that we don't want to be aligned with. And honestly, it gets downright embarrassing and infuriating and troublesome to imagine that we're all under this banner of Jesus's name alongside of theologies perpetuating misogynistic, racist, and imperialist actions. It's tough. So rather than tell people who, what I am, I tend to rely on my actions to speak for me as much as possible. Like the old, old song goes, and they'll know we're Christians by our love. Or in my revised version, they'll know we follow Jesus by our love. So how are we known? On the blocks that we live on, in our interactions with our coworkers, with the people we interact with online, because that's a real easy space to forget your identity and the belovedness of the person that you're not seeing in person. How are we known in the grocery line with our friends and our extended families? Are we people marked by love and welcome? Are we participating in the kingdom of God, the now and not yet reality of God's expansive love by embodying our belovedness? I'd like to invite you this week to consider your identities the hats that you wear, the ways that you're known by others, not to label ourselves in a limiting fashion, but instead to kind of get curious about the ways we show up in our lives. What convictions do we hold and are those evident for people around us? Consider how your identity as a follower of Jesus might be evident to those, not by the perfection we attain, not by the morality we espouse, not by the walls that we erect to keep others out or to keep others in, but by our love and action, by doing justice, by loving kindness, by walking humbly with our Creator. And just as Paul and Silas and Timothy wrote words of encouragement to the congregation they cared for, I too get to encourage you. And that's one of my favorite things about being your pastor. Friends, I see God's goodness and mercy, compassion and love emanating through your lives through postures of kindness, like making hummus for a friend. I see the way you encourage each other with notes. I see postures of curiosity and your desire to lean in towards the hard and beautiful work of keeping community together. I see you with genuine interest that you have in connecting with newcomers, not because you're supposed to, not because you have an agenda, but because you see your own belovedness and recognize it in another person. I see a gathering of people who have been through tough journeys together, and even if it's the slightest flicker of hope, you still show up at the well of God's goodness in community. God is here in the activity of the church, in our individual lives, in the plants that grow outside this wall in the lovely garden. And we're invited to return again and again to God, to express care and compassion on behalf of others and our communities, and to hold 
onto hope and to hold out that hope to others. In this simplicity, may we find our identity as followers of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Genesis Church Podcast. Our teaching team is made up of men and women who love asking probing questions of each week's scripture portion. Creating opportunities for our community to respond from wherever they are in their faith formation. We follow the Revised Common Lectionary and a church calendar because they anchor us in something which can hold us no matter what life throws our way. Our goal is to become ordinary apprentices of Jesus who are learning to love God, ourselves, and others wholeheartedly. If you have any questions or would like to connect with us, please visit genesiscove.org. Thank you.